When historians of the future look back to our time and place, one of the things they will notice is that we are a time and place of gender confusion. As a society, we can't decide if we're transgender, gender fluid, or gender neutral. We seem to believe male and female are just ideas that we made up, and so we can unmake them and remake them any way we want. Now, that might seem like freedom at first, but the result of that is just confusion about who we are. And confusion about who we are leads to despair. If I don't know who I am, how can I know what my life is for? How can I know that I even matter? If I have no real identity except what I make for myself, then I'm not so much free as lost. Today, millions of people feel lost. Maybe you feel lost. But the good news is God delights in bringing lost people home. So as we come to the Bible this morning and as we read things that sound strange to us, and they will sound strange to us, don't be surprised by that. We live in a time of gender confusion and we're about to read God's clear word to us. It's no surprise if that clear word seems strange to us. But it's here to lead us out of confusion and help us be the men and women we were created to be. Our passage this morning is about church, gender, and the glory of God. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. If you're looking for that in the Bible, it's page 1152, or in the larger print, 1782. And we're going to read verse 2 of chapter 11 down to verse 16. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. 
Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word. At the end of chapter 10, Paul called the Corinthians to do everything for the glory of God. And here he begins a long section in the letter about doing church for the glory of God. Honoring God in their corporate worship and their life together. Previously, Paul has dealt with how the Corinthian Christians are to conduct their private lives. Now, the focus shifts to their life together as the church of Jesus Christ. And in this passage, Paul says three things. He says, first of all, God's plan for all relationships is equality and an order of authority. And second, he says, in its gender relationships, the church is to display its agreement with God's plan. And finally, he says, the church is to look to creation as its model. Now, obviously, sometime before this, Paul had taught the Corinthians about living and worshiping together as a church. In verse 2, he mentions the traditions he had passed on to them. And he says the Corinthians have been remembering and holding to those things. However, maybe they've begun to wonder, are the things Paul said just traditions? Are we free to set them aside and make up different ones? Some traditions are like that. They can be forgotten about and it doesn't really matter. Or it might even be a good thing to forget them. Like the tradition of the bride throwing her bouquet at the wedding. Do any women really want to stand there fighting to catch that? The Corinthians seem to be wondering, are these traditions about worship in the same category as throwing the bouquet? But Paul wants them to see these are not things the church can do away with. Down in verse 16, he says, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. What Paul is about to talk about is for all churches all the time. And the subject is gender relationships in the church. How men and women are to relate to one another. But Paul starts by widening things way out to include God the Father and God the Son. Look again at verse 3. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of woman, the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Paul is saying in this verse that God's plan for all relationships is equality and an order of authority. 
It's very important for us to see that because one common criticism of what the Bible says about authority in the church is that it makes women out to be inferior in some way. Now, we can agree that some Christians have acted like women are inferior. That's true. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that what it says about authority in the male-female relationship also applies to authority in the divine relationship of the Father and the Son. Verse 3 says, the head of Christ is God. Headship means being over, having authority over. Does that mean Jesus Christ is inferior to the Father? Does it mean he has somehow less value, less status? Absolutely not. In John's gospel, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Jewish leaders were wrong to plot against Jesus, but they were dead right about what Jesus claimed for himself. John tells us they tried to kill him because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus was not in any way inferior to his father. But he was under his father's authority. Also in John's gospel, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So side by side in John's gospel... We have those strong statements about Jesus' equality with his Father right alongside statements that he is under the authority of his Father. The relationship of the Father and the Son shows equality does not rule out being under authority. Being under authority does not indicate inferiority. And when it comes to human relationships, we find the same thing. The Bible insists, and we'll see this later, that all human beings are equal in value and dignity. All human beings are made in God's image. And God has set up an order of authority for human relationships. That order is not always connected to gender. It includes the authority of government over the people, it includes authority in the workplace. It includes the authority of parents over children. None of those situations mean the person under authority is inferior. But they demonstrate that an order of authority is part of God's plan for all kinds of relationships. And God's plan is wise. Because as attractive as anarchy might sound to us, it just results in chaos. A couple called Ted and Margie Tripp sum up the Bible's teaching like this. Human relationships are horizontal in terms of worth and dignity. All human beings are made in God's image 
are crowned with glory and honor and are given rule over the rest of creation in relationship to God and saving grace. All human beings are equal. All come to God on the same basis. And God is no respecter of persons. But at the same time, God has established fears of authority and responsibility for mankind. And according to the Bible, in the church, the head of the woman is man. That's what Paul says in verse 3. Now, if you and I agree with that, it does not mean we're tyrants if we're men. It does not mean we have no self-respect if we're women who agree with this. It just means we believe God's plan is wise and it is for our good. And Paul goes on to tell us, in its gender relationships, the church is to display its agreement with God's plan. It's a point Paul will make again at the end of the passage in verses 13 to 16, but let's just look again now at verses 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, that's his physical head, dishonors his head, meaning Christ who is his head in God's order of authority. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, her physical head, dishonors her head in God's order of authority. It is the same as having her head shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. When you and I read that, the thing that stands out to us is the stuff about women covering their heads, right? But that would not have been what stood out to most of the Corinthian church. It would not have been what stood out most starkly to them. Look again at those verses and notice there is no difference at all in what Paul expects men and women to be doing in the church. In verse 4, we read, every man who prays or prophesies. And in verse 5, we read, every woman who prays or prophesies. Paul is about to mention the need to show agreement with God's order of authority. But clearly, the way to do that does not involve preventing ladies from participating in the church. Here, he assumes equal participation. That was not how it worked in pagan worship situations. That's not the background these Corinthian Christians came out of. In those pagan worship situations, men and women usually worshiped separately. But Paul assumes in the church, men and women are worshiping together and participating together. That is displaying the church's agreement that men and women are equal in God's sight. Now, in other places, and in fact later in this letter, Paul will say certain responsibilities in the church are reserved for men. But that is not what he wants to stress here. If there are some things ladies are not to do, in this passage, 
Paul chooses to stress what they can do. And it seems best to take this as a representative list. In other words, he's not saying they are only to pray and prophesy. There's no indication Paul would rule out singing, for example, or reading scripture, for example. And another day, we'll think more about what prophecy actually is. Because later on, Paul is going to say much more about it. The short answer here is that I don't think it's quite the same as what we mean by preaching today. There might be some overlap, but prophecy seems to be less to do with teaching the Bible and more to do with sharing a God-given insight into something. But for the moment, prophecy is not our focus. What we need to see is the church's life together, and particularly its worship together, must display the church's agreement that men and women are equal in God's sight. And we do that by having men and women participate together in the church's worship. That's the principle we start with, like Paul does here. Our life together is to display the equality of men and women. We're to take that fact seriously. Then we go on to take another fact seriously. Our life together is also to display the order of authority God has set up in the church. The head of the woman is man. Throughout these verses, there is an ambiguity in the language Paul uses. The words translated as man and woman could also be translated husband and wife. Your Bible will have a footnote telling you that. So which is it? I think the answer is both. In other words, this has application to husbands and wives in the church and to men and women in general in the church. I don't see anything that restricts this to married people in the church. Even as Christian men and women participate together and display their equality in God's eyes, they are also to display their agreement with God's order of authority. The way Paul describes them doing that needs a bit of explaining. He says, men are not to participate with their heads covered, but women are. Well, is that just a random, quirky idea that Paul had that he thought would be useful? Did it just pop into his mind as an easy way to signal a difference? No, that is not where it came from. Well, then, did Paul take this from the Bible? Is there something in the Old Testament that says this? The answer to that is also no. This comes, in fact, from the culture of the time. At this time, it was normal for a woman to have long hair and to appear in public with her head covered. It was not normal for a man to have long hair. In fact, that was a statement of homosexuality. Now, that was not the case in the Old Testament. When a man in the Old Testament took a Nazarite vow, that was a vow of special devotion to God, he was instructed not to cut his hair. So here, Paul is dealing with hair and hair covering and what they mean in the culture of the time. When he talks in verse 14 about the nature of things, 
He means the common practice of the time. That's also the case in verse 15, where he says a woman's hair is her glory. That was the cultural view. A woman's long hair was considered to be sexually provocative. And therefore, it was to be hidden in public. In the same way that other parts of ladies' bodies are hidden in public today. So if a lady chose to appear with her head uncovered, she was choosing to send a signal. It signaled sexual availability. And we know that because some women at the time were choosing to discard their hair coverings And it was a highly controversial thing in society at the time because it was a declaration of promiscuity. And if the woman had a husband, it shamed her husband. Historians tell us in terms of the symbolism here, a woman then appearing in a public gathering without a head covering, it had the shock value of a woman today getting onto a platform in a bikini and then taking off her wedding ring. When we understand that, it's not hard to see why Paul tells Christian women not to throw off the cultural practice of covering their heads. Now, Paul is certainly not a slave to what the culture does. We've seen that plenty of times in this letter. He's more than willing to defy culture when it goes against God's word. But when going against culture would send a signal that we are against God's good order, then we shouldn't do it. Another way to put it is the church ought to show more respect for proper boundaries than the culture around us does. We don't take our standards from the culture around us, but our standards better not be lower than the culture. That's the point. And it means for the Corinthian women to ditch their head coverings would be a signal they were ditching God's order of authority. Now, we live in a different time and culture. We saw that when we looked at the whole issue of meat sacrificed to idols in chapters 8 to 10. The principles never change. Christians are always to flee from idolatry. We're not to put anything else in God's place. We're to consider others in the daily decisions that we make. The principles are always the same, but the way we live out those principles will vary according to when and where we live. If we thought that chapters 8 to 10 were only about meat, we'd have missed the point. It's the same here. If we think this is just about hair and hair covering, we'll miss the point. Now, this does tell us we're to dress in ways that are appropriate for males and females. We're not to dress in ways that are provocative or gender-bending. But the big point of this is that in our time and place, we're to find ways to display our agreement with God's plan for equality and for an order of authority in church life. 
We as a church do that by having a rule that says the responsibility of eldership is only given to men. That overall leadership of the church displays the Bible's teaching that the head of the woman is man. That doesn't mean every woman in the church is under the authority of every man in the church. It means the church as a whole, women and men, is under the authority of several male elders. That position is very countercultural today. And it's very hard to miss. It's an upfront distinctive. Every person who becomes a member of the church is giving their agreement to that order of authority. They're pledging that they won't try to subvert it or overthrow it. And alongside that, we do our very best to honor the other side of the equation. The truth that male and female are equal in God's sight. So we are not ashamed that we restrict eldership to men because we believe that honors God. And we're not ashamed of saying yes to women being involved in just about everything else that goes on in the church because we believe that honors God. Paul has given us the principles and now he gives us a picture that helps us get our heads around this. It's a picture presented in the earliest chapters of the Bible. The church looks to creation as its model. Look at verse seven. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Is Paul saying the woman then is not the image and glory of God? No, he's referring back to Genesis. And Genesis chapter 1 is clear that both men and women are made in God's image. We read, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's no ambiguity there. The writer of Genesis takes great care to say male and female equally bear the image of God. So what is Paul talking about here? He's referring to Genesis chapter 2, which tells us, The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, And he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So Genesis 1 tells us, The woman along with the man is the image and glory of God. And Genesis 2 tells us, In a unique way, she is also the glory of man. And that can only be because she came from man. Her existence and her beauty are the glory of the man who unknowingly provided the material for her creation. So the male did not deserve to become head because of some great thing he did to deserve it. 
He became head simply because that's the position God put him in. By creating him first and by creating the woman from him. So men, as we accept our responsibilities to lead in the church and at home, we ought to do that with a good dose of humility. Because we did not earn this responsibility. We have it simply because God gave it to us. It's a genuine responsibility, and we better not shirk it. And ladies are not to try and overthrow it. Verse 10 says this order of authority is to be maintained because of the angels. There are several possible explanations for what that means. But the most convincing explanation is simply that the angels are guardians of the honor and glory of God. That is how they are presented in Scripture. And so, the angels are concerned that God's order of authority be maintained. This is something that heaven takes very seriously. So, we ought to be serious about it too. But man... There's no reason for us to be proud of having authority. That's all the more so when we notice why the woman was created. Paul says in verse 9, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Here's how Genesis 2 puts it. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Far from suggesting that the woman is a kind of afterthought, Genesis indicates she is a necessary addition to what God had already created. She was created because man by himself was not good. She is provided by God to rectify the man's deficiencies. Is there any other way to understand that verse? Something that's perfect and self-sufficient doesn't need help. But the man did need help. The woman was created so that humanity might be all that God intended it to be. Ray Ortland says this about the man. His impact for God would be diminished if he were to remain alone without the strong help of a strong woman. He needed her high-capacity contribution. Unified as head and helper, the man and the woman together can prosper as noble servants of their creator. That is true in marriage, and it is true in the church. The church is to be a place where male and female work together with complementarity, with interdependence. The first man and woman needed each other. And in the church, we need each other because we are not the same. As male and female, we both bring necessary things to the table. An all-female church or an all-male church 
would not be what God intended the church to be. A church that minimizes women's contribution and squeezes them to the edges of things. Or a church that treats men as the enemy and tries to overthrow them. Both of those situations will fail to honor God. Both of them will turn into lopsided, ineffective messes. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women and man are not independent. Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. The first woman came from man, but every human being since then came from a woman. That doesn't overthrow the order God established at creation. But it does show the interdependence of men and women has to be recognized also. God established that with the birth of the third human being, Cain, born to Adam and Eve. The interdependence of male and female is as much a part of the picture as male headship is. This passage has presented us with a careful balance. It's a balance we need if we're going to honor God in our church life and worship. Society never gets this right. It swings back and forwards. In the past, our culture stressed male authority to the point of exploiting and oppressing women, treating them really as if they were second class. We can be glad things have changed in very significant ways. But at the moment, as a society, we are charging hard to the opposite extreme where we're so concerned to stress equality, we're in danger of denying the good and helpful differences between men and women. We're trying to flatten everything out, and that is not a triumph for women. It's a disaster for everyone. How can we truly be interdependent? How can we make contributions that are complementary how can we truly help one another if we insist that we're all exactly the same and we ought to be doing exactly the same things? The church is to be a refuge from the mad marches of culture, whatever direction that happens to be. We as a church are to live out the wise divine plan shown in creation, equality, and an order of authority. In Genesis, it didn't take long for that creation pattern to be marred and twisted by sin. But the church is God's new creation in Christ. This is the community 
where God's original purposes are to be restored. We're to show the way out of gender confusion and gender wars. So let's commit to take our calling seriously. To do church for the glory of God. And that will only happen as we display our agreement with God's plan. And we're going to close with a song that reminds us his plan is perfect because his wisdom is perfect.